Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. In this episode, we will talk about the future with the title, The Future is Faster Than You Think. We will explore why the future might be faster than we think and the power of exponential rise in what technology can do. And we will talk about how the future will be faster than we think. We have the honor today of welcoming Stephen Kotler, the founder of the Flow Research Collective and co-founder of the Rancho de Chihuahua Dog Sanctuary. He has authored nine books, maybe more by now, including Bold and Abundance, which are the other two parts of the trilogy of which this book is the last. And he has worked as a journalist for Time, Forbes, The Atlantic and others. Stephen, welcome to Innovation Matters. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. So first of all, let's talk about the basics of the topic. The future is faster than you think. You, you say that exponential technologies transform and will transform our lives fundamentally. First of all, what do we mean by exponential technologies? A great place to start. An exponential technology is any technology that is doubling in power on a periodic basis. So the classic example is Moore's Law. Gordon Moore, a couple of years before he founded Intel, noticed that the number of transistors on a computer chip had been doubling every 18 months. And this had been going on for about six years at this point. This was back in the, in the 60s. And he said, wow, this is amazing. I'll bet this keeps going for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Well, it's now 60 years on. And Moore's Law, as it came to be known, is the reason that you know the cell phones in our pocket are like a million times smaller and a million times cheaper than a supercomputer from the 1970s. This same growth curve shows up any time a technology transforms into a digital technology. So once we can turn a technology into the ones and zeros of computer code, it tends to jump on the back of Moore's law and it begins accelerating exponentially. And starting about in around 2000, uh, when the first book in, in the trilogy you referenced, uh, when we were uh, reporting that, which was, I guess, 2009, there were about 11 different technologies, robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, material science, computers, network sensors, and a couple others. Uh, they were all moving on these exponential growth curves, doubling in power on a periodic basis. So that's what we mean by exponential, and that's what we mean by exponential technology. So this is sort of the basic or the driving force of the book. And one of the examples that I like to use to sort of illustrate this is that you can now get more computing power than the entire world had 50 years ago for less than $50 in your pocket, which is pretty striking. But the main idea of this book is that we are at the tipping point with these technologies that will make what is already exponential more exponential of it as it were. And this will trigger what Kurzweil calls the law of accelerating returns. Could you tell us a little bit about who Kurzweil is and why this effect will kick in? Uh, Ray Kurzweil is an inventor, a genius. He's now the head of engineering at Google, so the head of artificial intelligence at Google. He's one of the more prolific inventors in history. He has a Grammy. He is an extremely talented author who's written 
I don't actually know how many books, probably a dozen, half dozen at this point. And he's probably the clear-headed thinker about how technology progresses that we've had. Meaning if you look at, he makes, he likes to make predictions and he makes his predictions based on exponential growth curves. And I, you, there's a Wikipedia page dedicated to it. I think at this point, you know, at thousands and thousands of predictions and he's like 86% right. So he beats everybody else in, in the predictions and he's, he's doing it all based on looking at the math underneath exponential growth curves and the convergence of exponentials. As you pointed out that what's happening today and why we're at this tipping point that you mentioned is these formerly independent lines of exponential technologies are starting to converge, right? They're stacking on top of each other. It's no longer AI developing alone. It's AI meets robotics meets material science meets nanotechnology and so forth. And you get a whole is much greater than some of those parts effect. So the law of accelerating returns, which is where you started, basically says that each successive generation of technology speeds up because it's built on the backs of the generation that came before. So technology itself, the speed of acceleration is itself accelerating. And when Ray worked the math, he figured out that in the 21st century, so we've next 80 years, basically, we are going to experience 20,000 years worth of technological change, according to his math. So that means we're going sort of birth of agriculture to the industrial revolution twice in the next 80 years. If you crunch it down, it means we're going to experience 100, 500 years of technological change in the next decade. So that's the tipping point that, that we're sitting at is this, this massive acceleration in the speed of technological change. And even if you don't agree with Ray and you say, okay, the law of accelerating returns, no way could possibly work in this fast. You can cut his prediction in half and it's 5,000 years of technological change uh, in the next century. It's a shift in everything that we know of. Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating observation and thought experiment. Could you maybe give us a few examples for our listener of what is happening now and yeah, what, you, what so, you think will happen in the near future? Um, you can sort of pick any field. When we open faster, the example that we give of convergence is flying cars. And the reason flying cars are such an interesting example is we've been dreaming of this technology for 100 years. And the predictions that flying cars were around the corner and around the corner and around the corner and around the corner have showed up periodically. And, and, a, and a ton of different people have tried, obviously, to create flying cars. And they're now starting to come onto the market. In fact, I think the first probably available flying car, the market actually started uh, selling in the past couple of months. I could be wrong on that. But uh, the point with flying cars is, you know, why today? And what's, what's cool about flying cars is they sit at the intersection of like 11 different exponential technologies. So you need kind of battery technology that spins out of exponentially growing solar technology. You need uh, hybrid electric motors, material science revolutions to make flying cars that are light enough to fly, yet durable enough uh, for travel and so forth and so forth, robotics, AI to fly them, and so forth and so forth. So you get this convergence in transportation of all of these exponentials, and it looks like a revolution. And that's what you would have, say, if you had a single exponential. What's different with 
flying cars. And when you talk about transportation, that's not the only exponentially converging technology that's showing up this decade. We're also getting high-speed maglev trains coming out of Elon Musk's foreign company and other versions of, of that technology. We're also seeing a huge transition from gasoline cars to electric cars. And we're also, Elon Musk has been talking about using the same rockets that he wants to send people to Mars with for terrestrial travel, which means you go to London to Shanghai in like an hour and a half kind of thing. And all of these technologies are rolling out over the next decade. So this is a radical sort of transformation of the entire transportation sector and our lives in really like small, subtle, weird ways that people don't think about. So flying cars on average can do about 300 miles on a single charge. So suddenly people aren't just living 10 minutes from work, 20 minutes from work. They can now, you know, travel that much distance to work. So how big is the local school district or how big is your dating pool? Or if you get maglev trains that can connect Los Angeles to Las Vegas, as they're working on now. All these kinds of basic sort of fabric of life questions that we don't think about get radically changed over the next 10 years, thanks to the convergence of all these technologies in the transportation sector. And that's just one example from one sector. Excellent. And I would add, of course, autonomous vehicles uh, will bring enormous benefits uh, energy sources, but also something as simple as radiology imaging. It makes radiologists much more effective and much much quicker yeah, to have AI, an initial reading. Yeah, AI has been poking into all aspects of medicine. And in fact, the difference between, say, Kurzweil's curves and reality is really well talked about with AI. For example, AI and quantum computing and other technology were on one trajectory before COVID occurred. But Drug discovery is an entirely AI-powered industry at this point. And what used to take, you know, five years and billions of dollars has been massively crunched down. And we, and we saw all this at work during COVID. However you feel about the vaccines and how they came out, the fact that we went from zero vaccines to eight different, you know, options within a year, thanks to artificial intelligence, is a, is a miracle. And what's interesting is, was AI exactly on that same developmental curve? Not entirely, but COVID, something that just showed up and happened, massively accelerated AI and quantum computing actually slowed down the development of flying cars a little bit. So like that wasn't, you know, at the start of Faster Reopen with Uber's flying car program, which was going to have cars on the road by the end of 2023, they've since canceled that program, sold it off. So that's one of the things that, that didn't happen, right? But what instead what happened is AI and quantum computing, all of these technologies got massively accelerated. One place you see it, as you pointed out, is radiology, right? We now know that AIs can read radiological screens far better than radiologists can. Thank you. I think those are all fascinating examples. And I wanted to bring a few others to listeners' attention you talk about quantum computing, uh, sensors, robotics, blockchain. Maybe you could give us one or two more illustrative examples that are going on right now and that, that you see as very promising. You know, let's just go back to AI for a second, because this is interesting. I got a chance, let's say five, six years ago, 
the soldier suicide in the United States has been a, a growing problem and mental health in the military has been a growing problem in the United States. And the scale of the problem got so big that there weren't just enough therapists in the world to provide care, even if you could afford to do it. So uh, the Department of Defense teamed up with a team at the University of Southern California and they built Ellie, who is the world's first AI psychologist. And I got a chance to sit down and have a therapy session with Ellie it's astounding that talking to an AI therapist is a lot, it's just as uncomfortable and just as sort of revealing um, as talking to a real therapist. And it turns out that uh, soldiers, for example, preferred talking to an AI shrink than to a real shrink. They didn't feel like they were being judged and they started to get better results. Now, this program has since been scaled up and scaled up and the level of technology inside that AI is getting better and better and better and better. Our face reading technology, our ability to decode emotions from from micro expressions and things like that are getting better and better. So if you look at something like the public mental health crisis in the world today, it's significant. And then you look at something like that and you say, okay, wait a minute, we've we've now got AI-based therapy that's scalable and that works. That's where these things start getting really interesting because what the thing that's really important about understanding exponentials, and we didn't cover this um, yet, but it's worth talking about is as technologies become exponential, they pass through a cycle that we talk about as sort of the six Ds of exponential growth. And it starts with digitalization, right? Technologies get digitalized. That's the first step. And then they become deceptive. This usually happens, right? We get a new technology. We hear all the hype and then it goes away. Virtual reality. I remember in the 90s, virtual reality was all the hype. It was going to be here. It was going to be here. And no, it wasn't here. It does. It hasn't showed up until right about now, actually. Um goes into this deceptive period, then it moves into a disruptive period, right? When it bursts forth and and it starts really changing the world. But then we get democratization and demonetization. So the money comes out of these technologies. We did this in abundance, right? We looked at how much money in technology was sitting inside your smartphone. In 1980s and 90s technology, and this was in 2011, there was over a million dollars worth of technology already tucked inside your smartphone. You used to have to buy and you now get for free just for getting a smartphone. This process continues. So all these healthcare technologies, we're talking about all these AI technologies, it's not pie in the sky. It trickles down to everybody very, very quickly. Yeah, I think we've heard in many other podcast episodes uh, with economic historians, especially that for some reason, in almost every case, we tend to overestimate the power of technology in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. And we see this with the internet and the tech bubble. We see this with, I was myself involved in launching the first tablet computer, which was an absolute flop. And a couple of years later, a better version targeted at consumers was a success that change things in a way that experts two years before uh, had not been able to predict. You talk, of course, about the six Ds, but you talk about yet another set of forces that amplifies these developments. Yeah, we can start all over the place. So in Faster, Peter and myself didn't just examine how converging technology and the law of accelerating returns sort of works and speeds up. There's a whole bunch of secondary forces that are 
further accelerating our acceleration. And let's just give out of the, out of all the ones you mentioned, let's just give a really simple one, which is business models. So people don't often think of business models as, you know, huge innovations, but they're, they're enormous, right? They're shifts in the entire system of how we exchange value. And a business model, right, is nothing more or less than just a system for exchanging value and, and ways to do it faster historically didn't show up very often, right? If you go back in the 20th century, we got like one new business model every decade. So for example, the 1950s, McDonald's showed up and we got franchises for the very first time in history, right? So franchises were a new business model from the 50s. In the 60s, with the advent of Walmart here in the United States, we saw the first big box stores. Since 2000, there have been something like 22 or 23 new business models that have showed up. And that number, I think, is probably higher now. This is a massive, massive shift in how we exchange value. There's so many new ways to do this. So this is speeding up society. More genius is, is another uh, sort of fabulous example because in the world before mass communication, in the world before the ability for almost anybody with a smartphone to get online and have access to information, most genius in the world, right? If you, if you just go by the numbers, some very minuscule portion of the population is born a genius, but historically our ability to find those people, to leverage their knowledge, maybe our those ability for those people to get an education. If you think about, you know, before the 20th century, if you weren't male and born in a certain part of the world, your chances of getting an education were nil. If you're a genius and your chances of like actually making a contribution You'd have to be born in a specific location to figure out how to get to that location. That's not the case today, right? With networks and communication the way it is, we have much more access to much more information. What this means is we have way more genius in the world, way more ways to cultivate genius in the world and to train genius and to find genius. And even better, I think our definition of what a genius actually is has massively expanded and is much more diverse than ever before and allows us to recognize all this stuff in different ways. So those are just a couple of examples. We could, you know, go on and on. Save time is another one you mentioned. And of course, one of the, the great advantages of technology, hypothetically, is that it gives us a lot of time back. And that certainly is true. If you look at the numbers on housework, which is everybody's agreed upon, you know, least favorite activity. It's shrunk from like eight, nine hours a day down to less than a half an hour a day for the average person. That's a huge shift, those sorts of things. So all of it together means that our acceleration is itself accelerating. Good. Let's talk about some of the consequences that you lay out in your book. You go through uh, several different sectors from shopping and education and healthcare. So one uh, cool example of convergence that we see in both those fields, my colleague, Dr. Adam Ghazali is a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Francisco, let's say four or five years ago, uh, had the cover of nature. So probably the most esteemed science journal in the world. And uh, he had the cover because um, he had developed a new technology. It was a video game, and it was a video game that treated cognitive decline in older adults. Now, 
cognitive decline is actually a, a term that means like six or seven different uh, changes in brain function. One of them is processing speed and task switching, our ability to go from one to another. And the, those abilities start to degenerate in our 20s and by our 60s, 70s, start to cause some problems in our cognition. Adam had developed a technology that could reset your brain and your processing speed from a 60-year-olds back to a 20-year-old. And it was the very first tech video game that was ever licensed by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, uh, as a medicine. So after you can now go to your doctor, I've got cognitive decline, and your doctor will write you a script for a video game. And what's interesting about this is about four or five years ago, I three years ago, I guess, uh, I was giving a presentation to NBC. NBC, the, one of the big three television networks in the United States. And I was talking to them about convergence in the future. And I said, are you guys, you know, developing healthcare programming? And they looked at me as, what are you talking about? I said, you got to ask yourself if today I can play a video game and improve cognitive decline 10 years from now, this goes from kind of a medical technology that you need a prescription from your doctor to get to general entertainment, right? Are you going to play a video game 10 years from now that's just fun? Or are you going to play a video game that's fun and makes you smarter or resets your brain? Take your pick. That's what's coming. That's how it's developing at a really sort of practical, interesting level. Um, I'll give you another example from education. So I work on the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. We're a research and training organization. And what we study and what we look at is peak human performance. What's going on in the brain and the body when human beings are performing at their very best. And underneath the heart of our work uh, is a state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. Flow is some being in the zone, runner's high, the synonyms are sort of endless. First, any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption, you're so focused on your do- what you're doing that everything else just disappears. And all aspects of performance go through the roof. One of the things that massively increases in flow is our ability to learn. So in studies done by the U.S. Department of Defense, soldiers in flow, for example, learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. This is not completely unusual. We know uh, why this happens and how this happens. So that's just a, a flow fact about learning. So we at the collective right now, are involved in a number of different research initiatives with virtual reality companies. Why? Because virtual reality is really good at putting people into flow. I can go into the specifics, but I'll just leave it alone. VR is really good at putting people into flow. One of the reasons we want to do this is one of the advantages of VR in education is, of course, it gives you distributed classrooms, right? There aren't enough schools in the world. There aren't enough teachers in the world. But with VR and VR-based learning platforms, we get fully distributed classrooms available to anybody who can get their hands on a headset. If we build flow-based, VR-based platforms, these are accelerated learning virtual platforms. We have high learning virtual platforms. If you add an AI layer to it, and you mentioned this on the last podcast that education because of AI is getting very, very individualized. Suddenly you couple AI to VR to flow science. And what you have is a fully distributed, completely individually tailored, distributed, accelerated learning platform. We're developing this platform for worker retraining, which is one 
avenue. For example, we know autonomous cars are coming. We know autonomous trucking is coming. Trucking is the largest employer in the United States. And within the next 10 to 15 years, most of those trucks are going to be replaced with autonomous trucks, which means we need to retrain very rapidly one of the largest workforces in America, right, to keep pace with this chain. So VR meets AI, meets flow science, gives us this accelerated learning platform for worker retraining or for education. We are not personally doing it for education simply because the minute you dip a toe into education, you end up in a curriculum battle with parents. And I do not want to argue with parents about what their kids should be learning in school. That's above my pay grade. But um, we are working on the technology and it has huge applications in education. And we're, not, of course, not the only one. A lot of other people are doing this. So here's a healthcare example. Here's an education example. I think both are, are very practical because both you know, are not, you know, that this is not, we're not talking about you know, technology for anybody who's elite. We're talking about something that's going to go wide. Well, thank you, Stephen. And I think you're actually underselling one important point, and that is customization. The case study that I read, and I'll mention it now, uh, was a case of a charter school in the Bronx that used artificial intelligence on iPads to have sort of virtual textbooks. Mm-hmm. It involved quite a bit of gamifying, and it's already happening also, I think, in military training and potential, of course, is, is enormous. Uh, and this charter school managed to send more people to Ivy League schools than Stuyvesant, which is uh, uh, one of the elite public schools in the U.S., and it was in the Bronx and took in the local population of what's in the U.S. is called inner city. And it's hard to believe. I checked the data. Uh, there might be some selection bias in there, but even if there is, that's an astonishing example. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about you also make an effort. And of course, uh, speaking from the U.N., uh, we work on the sustainable development goals. Uh, we're very, great, we're very grateful for this. <laughs> Give us a couple of examples of how this would actually also help the least fortunate yeah, so let me, in the world. Let me back too. up one, one second and talk about what was the general theme of the, we're talking about a trilogy of books, but the first of those books was abundance. And the idea in abundance was thanks to exponentially accelerating technology, we had the power to meet all of the world's grand challenges. We didn't say this was going to happen automatically, right? This was, ours was not a techno-utopianist book at all. What we said is we have the technology gave us the power to do this. It was still going to require the largest cooperative effort in history to pull it off, um, to solve some of these grand challenges. Um, Obviously, sustainability, climate change, species die off, all of these these topics sort of sit at the heart of it. And the way I always thought about it was we're in a race against time, whether it's, it's climate change or species die off. These are the giant crises of our time. And I think we have the technology to solve them. Can we cooperate fast enough to pull it off? And at the scale, that's an interesting question. There are really cool signs that say yes. And, you know, one of them, the most obvious is not technological, it's financial. Last year, we saw for the very first time in history, a trillion dollars invested in green energy. This is the very first time any venture sector has ever hit a trillion dollars in a year, and it was green energy. That is a radical, radical global shift in how we produce our energy, Um, and it happened in one year. So that's the much more practical rubber meets the road 
kind of outcome from all the exponential advancements we've seen in solar and wind and geothermal. And, you know, 20 years later, it adds up to a trillion dollars worth of investment in a single year. Did you also talk about what you call the five great migrations? Maybe you could give us a sense of what you have in mind there. Yeah, so um, most of the future fest and you think focuses on the 20s, what's going to happen between 2020 and 2030. And that was the core focus of the book. But we wanted to pull back at the end of the book and have a longer view. And the view we took is we looked at five migrations. Migrations, um, especially coming from the UN, you guys obviously know this, one of the greatest drivers of change in history. Good and ill, migration is an enormous driver of change. And we're in the middle of obviously five great migrations. The most obvious one is climate migration, uh, which is already ongoing. And the United Nations itself put the number at tens of millions of people back in 1990. Climate Central in 2015 said if we get two degrees of warming, it's 130 million people on the move. Four degrees warming, it's like 470 to 760 million people on the move. This is an enormous migration, most major cities could be underwater, right? Hong Kong, London, Calcutta, Shanghai, Rio, where do those people go? So this is one giant shift that is coming or can be prevented depending on how we choose to react to climate change. Urbanization is another one, right? We are migrating from the countryside to the cities and in droves, right? 200 years ago, less than 10% of us live in cities. By 2007, it's 50%. By 2050, it's 75% of us, um, right? Nine, nine billion people. This is an exodus of like 2.5 billion people. You know, this is a great opportunity or it's a, a great detriment. Again, to quote the UN, 70% of the UN sustainability goals can be reached through smarter cities. So if we urbanize properly um, in a sustainable fashion, 70% of this problem gets solved. Another Migration that most people are not looking at is the migration into virtual worlds. In America, 321 million Americans spend 11 hours a day online and VR and video games make this a lot worse. And one of the things I point out is, um, so I worked on Flow. And as we talked about at the start of this, virtual reality is very good at dropping people into Flow. Now, Flow is everybody's favorite activity on Earth. When you ask people what's the most pleasurable experience you can have on earth, flow always tops the charge. When psychologists define happiness, the upper two tiers of happiness have flow sort of baked into the definition. But more importantly, flow is also not just happiness, it's also meaning and, and, th and really important, deeper well-being overall life satisfaction. So what you have to realize is that video games are getting better and better at putting people into flow. Virtual reality is even better than that. And what this means is that at some point in the future, virtual life is going to become more fun, more real, more pleasurable, and more meaningful than regular reality. And that will start a shift of a migration into the virtual. We're going to see a migration into space. Um, and we'll also see possibly the longstanding one in that migration of how our intelligence works into a sort of collective meta intelligence. A lot of different brain computer interface companies are working to connect human brains 
to the internet. That's a collective meta intelligence that we're suddenly going to be merging with and migrating into at a really deep and personal level. So those are the sort of the five great migrations that we were looking at in the book. Some of them are, are, are very practical things that the people are looking at, and some of them are a little stranger, but no less real. Excellent. And uh, just a follow-up on the point of climate adaptation, I think we have a stark lack of faith in human ingenuity and innovation and a look at history when we talk about both finding new sources of energy and adapting to whatever may come. The Dutch built uh, walls uh, protecting the third of the country from the seas back in the dirt poor Middle Ages. They're already building walls in Bangladesh. And we have lots of technology at our disposal. Yeah, the vast majority of the challenges that we are up against are no longer technological. They're about cooperation. Can we cooperate at the scale we need to solve the challenges we need to solve? And that's an interesting question. It definitely is. And I think right now we're in the middle of a climate crisis. And I think now it's clearer than ever that it's a political problem more than a technical problem. Because you're not going to be popular as a politician if you say, oh, I'm going to invest in 100 different technologies. And maybe I'm sure one of them will work out in 20 years long when I'm gone. It's easy to understand why that is not attractive. But let's hope that uh, we turn together as a world more in that direction. Good. So Robert Gordon, as you know, uh, he wrote in The Rise and Fall of American Growth. He's still arguing that the period 1870 to 1940, including, of course, the Spanish flu and World War, showed higher living standards, improvements, and technology change than in the period 1940 to 2010. Another way to put it is that a person from 1870 would not recognize the world in 1940, whereas a person from 1940 would recognize the world in 2010. He wrote, he wrote this knowing about uh, Moore's Law and exponential technologies. Why do you think IT or other technologies are not showing up in the productivity figures? That's an interesting yeah. question. The, I mean, let me just pause you because like, okay, so it went faster 50 years ago than it is today. I'm 55 years old and I think about what life was like when I was growing up in 1970 and when I think about life today and I'm in a different universe. It's not the same universe and everybody alive can will, will say the same thing. So depending on how you're measuring which one first, which what's faster. And certainly if you look at what is available to individuals now versus what it was available to individuals in the 1940s, that's radically shifted too. I like I this is faster than that and progress is better here than there. Like, I think you can nitpick it to death in how you're measuring it, but you can't deny the fact that things are, are technologically shifting very, very, very quickly. And I go back to, you know, the 1890s and we, at this point we make an abundance and the richest people on earth did not have air conditioning, flushing toilets, running water, cars, transfer, any of those things that, you know, scale up to the 1950s, 1960s, the, some of the poorest people on earth had access to those things. And so you've got a hundred years where the technologies that the richest couldn't afford are suddenly available to everyone. That's a shift we've all sort of experienced one way or another. So for good or for ill, but still like de- trying to deny the change or trying to say it's slowing down doesn't make any sense to me. I assure you, I'm more on, on your side on this debate. But one final thing I wanted to put to you is 
the difference between technology and actual innovation, meaning creating value out of these and having ideas for it and investing in them and scaling them up. It's sometimes striking, for instance, if you only look at healthcare, that we have children who die from tuberculosis. It's easy to imagine a bit of technology, a portable laboratory, a basic medic training to save those lives for a fraction of the already minuscule uh, amount that uh, developing countries are spending on healthcare. We're not doing it. This uh, virtual textbook that I told you about in the charter school that had amazing results in a country that is plagued by stark differences between the quality of public schools saw no pickup. No one looked at that and said, wait, that's what we have to do. We continue in the same way. We ourselves knew about video conferencing. We didn't do one single virtual meeting until we had to because of the pandemic. So there's so much of this really easy innovation that we're simply not picking up, although they already make sense. So my question is, how can we promote more innovation and how much do you think we can absorb when we're talking about something as astonishingly exponential that you are talking about? There's two different problems here. One is about technological adoption, right? You know, invariably, two things tend to drive that, right? Either a crisis and we have to react to it, or you make it so easy and inexpensive for people, the option doesn't make sense anymore. Those tend to be the two big drivers of adoption. And that's an interesting, complicated people problem that I don't know if I have a tremendous amount of expertise on. Where I do have expertise and what I can speak to is, is stuff around innovation. And here's where I like what's going on. So I work on flow. Flow is the state of consciousness that underpins peak human performance. We talked about how flow amplifies learning. It also significantly amplifies creativity and innovation. And this has been well reported for you know 50 years. There's a tremendous amount of work on it. And different studies have tried to put different numbers on it. The spike in, in, in creativity and innovation is depending on how you're measuring. It's like 400 to 700%. It's a huge spike above baseline. And what's really interesting to me is, for example, uh, my company is now training people individuals and organizations in 130 countries. It's global. So ideas around peak human performance and accelerating creativity and innovation inside a business, the human side of that equation is improving significantly as well. And I think when you start seeing those things coming together, that's when it gets interesting. That's what sort of gives me a lot of hope is that the human factors that had been in our way were starting to sort of resolve. I couldn't help but thinking, this is a weird thought, but one of the things that is coming out of neuroscience lately is the science of embodied cognition, the idea that our brain isn't just in our head, it's fully distributed through our body. And one of the funny examples of this, one of the early examples actually came out of radiology. And they discovered that if you have expert trained radiologists, most of the time they're right about 85% of the time. If you put them on walking treadmills and show them the same screens because of how embodied cognition works and that we're a distributed brain, they become 99% accurate. So we're learning things about how humans perform at really found it. How do we become more creative? How do we become more productive, more fulfilled? Those kinds of things. We're seeing that kind of innovation happening now too. So we're seeing our technology law of accelerating returns. We talked about in the first is accelerating, but our ability to innovate off that technology, what you're talking about we're getting better at the stuff that's underneath that stuff, at the human stuff that's underneath it. 
that's interesting and that's what makes me very hopeful here. I particularly like this point because the more potential that we can get out of people, the more potential we will have for the actual innovation that needs to happen to make use of this technology. And the other point I wanted to pick up on is basically the whole idea of, are we going to be able to absorb all of this? And one of the problems that you talk about in the book is the issue of user interfacing, of how much failure is involved in sitting there and thinking about where would a user expect to find this and most of the time failing. I think there, there's a lot of progress. I love interface design. I think it's super interesting. And the technological interface is the unlocking move, right? The, the classic example was the, the Netscape browser. Before and after, you go from like 33 websites online to a couple of million in a single year. And I think that's where I see the most potential for innovation to find ways of people interacting with technology in a way that is intuitive and attractive for them. And that's where AI holds especially large promise because we have the self-learning and self-reinforcing mechanisms. Um, I wanted to raise just one final thing with you, and that is the future of work. We've been predicting this since even Aristotle. Keynes said that we would have technical unemployment already in the 50s. And now, of course, it's very high on the agenda. About 60% of current jobs will be automated uh, by, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. So far, we've been amazingly good at finding new stuff to do. In fact, at the moment, too good. We have too little labor and uh, races are rising unsustainably here in Switzerland, but also in the U.S., But in theory, it's, of course, still the case, especially with the exponential rise that you're talking about. Talk just a little bit about how you think work will be, how will people get their incomes, how will they um, feel useful themselves and get the income they need and do something meaningful every day. That's an interesting one. The, The internal side of this is what's really interesting to me. Because we derive a great deal of meaning and, and, and joy in our lives from whatever we call work. Um, and that, so that's an interesting question. You know, is work a different thing from income? Or did we, do, do we separate some of this stuff? I've seen, as you probably have, a bunch of the studies on universal basic income. And they're interesting. I tend to not think things are going to go that way, mostly because I think people enjoy having something to do. And the idea that work is going to go away is the idea that like useful things are going to go away from the world. I don't, I don't see that exactly. I've, I've not, I've not seen that. Um, so I know people keep saying this is going to happen, but I, I, I'm with you. I don't see it moving in that direction. Well, we see it clearly that the predictions of history were wrong and systematically wrong and majorly wrong. It's of course more difficult to talk about the future because we don't know it. But I think we should have some confidence in, in the amazing human ability to find new and valuable well, yeah, things to do a, for some time. Are we going to run out of ways to create value for one another? That uh, like I don't think so. Nobody's saying that. So as long as we're not going to run out of ways to create value for one another, I don't think we run out of ways to make a living. Um, I also think you know what qualifies as a job changes a lot once we start moving into like completely circular economies and things like that. And that's a little interesting to me. Great. Just to finish up this conversation, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the challenge that 
innovation policymakers that want to promote the kind of really transformative and positive innovation that technology makes available and also new business models and other factors that you talk about. What are some of the things we can do? And especially here in Europe, where we've seen marked absence of anything near the kind of dynamism you see in Silicon Valley or even in Israel. In fact, uh, Israel, I think, have more Nasdaq companies than all of Europe put together. What can we do to really promote experimentation with so these technologies? I'm not a policy expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I will tell you about uh, an interesting study. So Philip Rosedale is the man who created uh, Second Life, the world's first virtual world. He's a very brilliant man. And at one point, Philip got curious about factors that drive innovation in, in cities. And he wanted a huge sort of analysis of different factors that drive innovation. And his conclusion after, after looking at this for a really long time was that the number one factor that drove innovation was that if people took a job with a startup company and that company went belly up, there was another startup nearby that would hire them. It was literally density of startups per area that was the biggest factor because it wasn't that people were unwilling to take the risk. It's that if it failed, they wanted a backup plan. And that always sort of stayed with me as something that people are not exploring enough, which is that a lot of people seem to want to take the chances and want to move in that direction. And what they want is some assurance that if it goes wrong, somebody's got their back. And it's an interesting idea from a policy perspective, what that actually looks like. But I always think about that study when people ask me policy questions. Yeah, and I think that's that's an important point to try to limit some of the risk that accrues to the entrepreneur that takes this risk. So, for instance, in the U.S., one factor that I think explains a lot of the dynamism there is the U.S. bankruptcy laws. If you invest in something, you go belly up, uh, you're very unlikely to be held personally responsible and you can start over again. And, of course, you have a culture that encourages that failure is not something you're ashamed of. And culture matters a lot. There is a reason why we had so much genius in medicine in Edinburgh, in cold Scotland, and in Athens, and not in the middle of the Mongol steppes, because these were the places where we really value it. We welcome technology. We welcome genius. So any final words to our listeners, maybe those who are thinking about and maybe worried about some of the changes? Any final piece of advice to the entrepreneurs? I don't know if I have we'll a, see something big I, would have, I never know how to answer this question, but one thing that I tend to say, most of my career, whether on the, on the human performance side or the technological side, at the center of it has always been this question of, of what does it take to achieve the impossible, right? That's been my core subject. And usually when you see the impossible, something we've never seen before happen, it's usually people learning how to extend human capability with flow and people harnessing disruptive technology. So that's where these two sides of my... Uh, career go together. And, I, and I've probably been in the room more times when the impossible has become possible than, than almost anybody else alive because it, it was sort of my subject matter and has been. Um, so I've met all these phenomenal people who have achieved all these extraordinary things. And I always want to point out that none of them started out as extraordinary. They just sort of start out like you and me and finding over and over and over is that most of us have no idea what we're actually capable of. 
And we can only find out sort of by, you know, pushing on our skills, using them to the utmost today and then doing it again tomorrow and again tomorrow and again tomorrow. But like you talk to these people, none of them knew they were going to grow up to, to anything extraordinary. They didn't start out that way. And that's what always sort of sticks in my mind. You don't know what you're capable of until you try. The technology that, that we have at our disposal now allows us to go after grand global challenges. So that's my final thought. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll end there. Stephen, I think that's an excellent point to end because that's one of the things that we are almost preaching to. Thank you very much for being on Innovation Matters. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.